Well, welcome back. I love it, uh, getting our international foreign policy, national security, and sometimes political briefings, as we do every Monday from the supple mind of Brandon Weikert. He is the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower. His most recent book, Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. You can um, get that uh, probably probably at any online store and most bookstores, uh, and it couldn't be more timely. Brandon, happy Monday. Good to have you with us, sir. How are you, sir? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. Uh, I have a lot Only of... Only all right. Well, um, I have a lot of thoughts about China, and yeah, they might Maybe not all be thoughts. right, but I'm also <laughs> I'm also worried that everyone keeps talking about, like, for example, with the, um, the fighter jets, uh, American Air Force uh, surveillance plane, everyone's talking about yeah. a, everyone's talking about a near miss. And as George Carlin pointed out, it's right. not a near miss, it's a near hit. It was a full miss. Right. Yes. So, right. so I'm just, yep. I'm just obsessing about our language here. But I'm also obsessing about China between that and what took place in the Taiwan Straits with the Chung Hoon, USS Chung Hoon. Yeah, yeah. What is this about? The, in space or, or in general? Both. Well, uh, on top of everything you're listing, China also had their space plane uh, in orbit for several hundred days. It's a knockoff of the Boeing X-37B uh, unmanned space plane that the Air Force uses. And as this Chinese space plane was returning, a secondary object peeled off from the uh, space plane and went into a different orbit. And that was on top of the um, provocations that you're listing in the South China Sea and over Taiwan. Um, And so, in my opinion, if you take all of these uh, incidents together, you have, I think, a, an escalation of the threat that basically signals that I think we are rapidly approaching the point of no return when warfare between China and the United States is nearly here, over Taiwan. And what's your sense, before we get to what that looks like, what's your sense of the American people's willingness to defend Taiwan? I know this has been a surprising argument in the conservative movement, surprising to me at least. I, I never thought yeah. that there would be eyes, eyebrows raised on this, uh, but eyebrows have been raised about about yeah. this. Skepticism has been raised. It shocks yeah. me, but I wonder what your sense of where the American people are on this. I don't think that the American people are really thinking about it yet. I don't think they really have an opinion yet. Um, much like Ukraine, um, it, it really won't shape out in terms of the court of public opinion until the unfortunately the shooting starts and so that's always sort of a very scary situation but that tends to be the fickle nature of america's democracy especially when the homeland itself is not under direct attack but should taiwan be the target and should china decide that now is go time or very soon is go time um it may not be the american homeland falling under attack but it will be our our critical space assets, it will be our infrastructure in cyberspace, uh, not just military, likely civilian as well, that will fall under attack. So it's really contingent how the American people perceive such a Chinese attack. Will they perceive it as something that is indirect and far away and something that therefore is not worth, you know, the, 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 the cost and treasure and blood? Or is it is it World War II, uh, Pearl Harbor, and, and we're going in? And we won't know, unfortunately, until 
really the shooting starts. The president of the United States, whoever the president of the United States is, can shape not all of, but a substantial part of uh, public opinion. And it's been interesting to me, something you and I, I don't think have ever discussed, actually. The language he uses about Putin, which I think is escalatory at times, at times, sometimes deserved, sometimes escalatory. Uh, is never the language he uses uses about Xi Jinping. Never no, the that's la- what he's been bought and paid for by Xi. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, there you go. But that will have whatever the reason, and if it's that, there's a lot. I, I mean, I'm I'm with you. It's it's clear that there there is that. But but now that he's the commander in chief, um, he's not going to be able to do a very good job of rallying the American people to the side of Taiwan, having having not conditioned them to the fact that Xi Jinping. Is a um, is a is a is a land grabbing tyrant. Well, and that's where your your point is completely correct. Um, the idea that the American people are the deciders, or that they are alone the deciders, um, is not usually the case. So just look at, and this is a bad example because of the implications. But look at what happened with the Iraq War. Most Americans did not care one iota right. about right. Iraq in right. 2003. It took right. a consistent yep. year-and-a-half-long effort yep. by the Bush administration yep. to effectively shape public opinion, yep. and that's what led us into that conflict. And then, of course, the American people very quickly turned against that conflict. Um, but in this case, you have the opposite, where Joe Biden, everything is into Ukraine and, and Russia, but almost nothing is into China. And China is clearly the bigger threat. Even Biden's own China people are saying that the bigger competitor is is China, not not Russia. The difference is, though, the Biden people still hold on to this dream, much like they do with Iran, of basically doing the mother of all deals, of avoiding some catastrophe um, and uh, getting a deal with China, even if it means giving away America's hard-won position in the Indo-Pacific, which they will do. And their lack of shaping public opinion, of talking about this threat in a reliable manner, in a realistic manner, um, the, the China threat to Taiwan, and therefore the longer threat that China poses from Taiwan to the United States directly. And there is a long-term direct threat. If China can take Taiwan, they'll hold that first island chain. They'll then move to the second island chain, and before long they're at the third island chain, which is the Aleutian Islands down to the Hawaiian Islands. So that is a direct threat to the United States. It may not be here tomorrow, but it will be here eventually. And the President, Biden, He's not talking about this. He's, he, he, he's avoiding it, like the play. So you're right. The, the fact that he is lacking in shaping the public opinion in any shape or form on this threat, it indicates to me that he's not serious and that we're going to get caught with our britches now. He knows how to be when he wants to. I would, I would venture to say that yeah. the large bulk of the, of the public opinion that, that was marshaled against Putin was stricken, was set by Joe Biden in his State of the Union address, what, about a year ago or so now, a little yeah. over a year, a year and a half ago. I mean, he knows how to do it when he wants to. He dedicated 25 percent of his State of the Union to the issue. And I, I, I would guess that most people probably hadn't thought much about Russia and Ukraine. I mean, you, yeah. you, you do, and obviously your circles. And, I agree. But, but most people didn't know what to think until he told them what to think. Mm-hmm right or wrong and he has done none of that with regard to china none zero you would and think it you begs would think the question why. yeah go ahead yeah yeah well it begs the question why and this gets us back to what you and i were talking about the last week 
Um, I truly believe he is somehow compromised by Chinese intelligence, Joe Biden, um, because it doesn't make any sense if he's going to go this hot and heavy against Russia, um, which is a fraction of the power that China is. Why on earth would he not at least be similarly concerned publicly about China? It, it, we have to know what is the difference here. It could be ideological. I mean, it is ideological as well. Biden has an ideological commitment, and his team does, to getting global warming deals and trade deals done with China to save the economy with the trade deals, even though it's going to destroy our, our domestic market, um, and then also getting China to sign pieces of paper saying, yeah, yeah, we'll cut down on our CO2 emissions when America does first. Um, and this is what the Democrats are committed to. They don't care about Taiwan at the end of the day the way they care about Ukraine. And again, you have to wonder why. Why is Ukraine so much more important to the Democrats and Biden than Taiwan? And I don't have a good enough answer. The only thing I can think of is Russia didn't pay Biden enough money to care. It's interesting. And, and I suppose with a certain caucus of foreign relations senator types like McCain and Biden back in the day, there, there, there was a sensitivity or, or perhaps a higher sensitivity to some of those, uh, you know, some of those republics that used to be part of the Soviet Union. That having been said, though, um, that 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 relationship or that, shall I say, appreciation was born over the course of 25, 30 years. Our support for Taiwan goes back a lot farther than that. And Absolutely. let me take a commercial break. Let me ask you if it's even physically possible to defend Taiwan. Can I can I ask you that on the other side of the yeah. oh, thank you. Brandon Weikert is our guest W E I C H E R T aside from uh, his books uh, and really very vibrant Twitter feed at we the Brandon. He is a senior editor at 1945 1945.com. He and I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest. He's a senior editor at 1945.com, 1945.com, where his output is incredible, uh, writing on everything from foreign to domestic uh, politics and relations. And we're talking a little bit about Taiwan, especially in the light of the three incidents. I only knew of the two. I'm glad, Brandon, talked. you talk, told us about that third one, space-based incident. Um, it's always it, the space that people miss, and that's going to be the one that kills them. That's that's right. It's always the thing we're not looking at. That's 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 certainly the history of and folly of of of, of wars. I, you know, we've talked before about the fact that when Dick Cheney had hearings in 1989, he was never asked a single question about Iraq, and Don Rumsfeld, when he had his confirmation hearings in 01, was never asked a question about Afghanistan. Now, that, right. that is an important lesson to never forget. Right. Um, can we defend Taiwan if needs be? Um, well, it's getting harder every year, and that's not just because of the politics involved. That's because China's capabilities, and I talk about this you know, in my recent piece, um, China's naval capabilities in particular and their hypersonic threat and their threat to our space uh, assets um, is making it very every year more and more difficult. And um, if we don't keep up with China, and, and we're not, and if we don't start taking China's threat to Taiwan seriously, and we're not, 
then whether we want to defend it will be irrelevant because we won't be able to defend it because China is developing their entire military force to be able to fight and win a war over Taiwan, even if the Americans interdict. Um, and so um, can we defend? I think right now, yes, we could. It's going to be very messy if we do. Um, I have spoken to people in government for many years now on this issue, and it sounds like the consensus, however silent, is um, if China were to attack Taiwan, they would not, uh, the, the U.S. government would not intercede directly, that we would in fact basically let it happen, and, you know, we've given the Taiwanese a lot of training and a lot of money and a lot of equipment, and we would hope that the Taiwanese could hold out, and we wouldn't let the regional actors like Japan, in particular Japan, intercede before we did, and all the meanwhile, we would be using our Navy to try to harry any Chinese invasion and ultimate resupply missions of their forces invading Taiwan across the Taiwan Strait. And we would also be using our Navy to surreptitiously deliver equipment and arms supplies to the, Ukraine, to the Taiwanese who would be under siege. The problem is, in my opinion, that the Chinese are not just going to lay back and let that happen the way the Russians have sort of been made to let that happen. And that's part of, partly because of the way China's military is structured. That's partly because of the kind of resources China's military has compared to, to, to Russia and Ukraine. And that's also because of the geography involved in the Indo-Pacific compared to the geography involved in, in Europe and Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine is a land war. It's surrounded by friendly countries with the exception of Russia. Um, Taiwan is isolated, and it, 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 the water is, even for an advanced Navy like uh, the U.S. Navy, uh, ocean technology and the ability to traverse the sea over long distances is a very complex and, and uh, difficult affair. And let's face it, China is closer to Taiwan than the United States is. And so can we defend it at present? Yes, it would be very, very costly. Um, and, you know, if the Chinese, you know, got lucky the way that they're planning to get, you know, use their force in terms of knocking out space-based assets first to blind and dazzle U.S. forces on the Earth, uh, and then, you know, harrying us in the cyber domain, attacking us, disrupting us in the electromagnetic domain, which is the, the, the spectrum that our critical signals use to, to send communications and information back and forth in real time. If they can disrupt those three functions, um, the Navy won't be able to rally its forces, even if it wanted to do a direct attack. Um, the Marines would not be able to deploy effectively, and uh, the Air Force would have great difficulty conducting any kind of operations, uh, not to mention the precision miss long-range missile and hypersonic missile uh, test, uh, rather, uh, threats that China posed to the region, and they are developing a very, very sophisticated suite of, of missiles and hypersonic kill vehicles that can basically attack all of the forward-deployed U.S. and allied forces in places like Guam. Uh, and so it would be a very bloody affair, which is why I think beginning about five years ago, the Pentagon started gaming out, with, along with the State Department, hey, what if we didn't do a direct intervention in, in the case of China's invasion, but we did sort of this circumspect, uh, you, know, uh, you know, sort of roundabout intervention, tried to do a, a, a funding of, a, of an insurgency-type operation for Taiwan, 
where the Taiwanese were insurgents against the invading Chinese. I have problems with that, though. I just don't think that's going to work to the level the Pentagon thinks, not now. Um, and the longer we get into this decade, the less likely it will be that we could even do that reliably. Do you, is there, is there a concern to be had over a, a warship deficit between us and China? Our, as I read things, we're reducing our naval uh, our, yeah. our naval ship capacity uh, to something like 290 from almost 300, yeah. maybe, and China's planning to have something closer to 400. Is this a serious concern to you? So um, I, you talk to the Pentagon, and they would say no, because ultimately, yes, China does officially have a much larger Navy <laughs> quantity than we do, but our quality is far better. But I actually I disagree with that. I don't know if that's the case anymore. Uh, remember, Mao was famous for saying quantity has a quality all of its own. Right. Um, and the Chinese have lived by that overwhelming force, even if it's not as well-trained or supplied. I mean, just look at how Mao defeated Chiang Kai-shek. Right. He did it with depth and, and with massive numbers of people, and he did it with <laughs> really ingenious strategies. Um, and, in fact, there was a Chinese warlord. Um, he was born in Japan, but his name was Kokushinga. And he was uh, a rebel during the Manchu era, and he actually conquered Taiwan, or Formosa at the time, uh, using really innovative naval concepts, and he defeated the more sophisticated Dutch East India Company that had garrisoned there and was using Formosa as a base of operations. He did a surprise attack, he landed his troops, and he conquered the island within about a year, um, and the Dutch were not willing to send reinforcements to their garrison, and it was a humiliating defeat with the surrender of Fort Zealandia. And so the Chinese know their history well, and they're going to replicate that with modern technology. So, yes, the Navy, the U.S. Navy, is, is technologically superior, and we're this global force you know, for good, and we can reach anywhere in the world, but that's only because we have the capabilities of satellites. If you attack the Navy's multi-user objective uh, system, MUOS, You've just degraded the American Navy's ability to do instantaneous fleet formation and coordinated attacks over the horizon. And this is what the Chinese are planning to do. They are actively targeting that MUOS network in uh, geosynchronous orbit. That's the highest orbit above Earth. Um, and so that alone makes the ability of our Navy to conduct effective operations um, really null and void. Furthermore, even if you have one modern U.S. Navy warship versus a dozen or 30 small, old Chinese ships, the fact of the matter is those smaller Chinese ships are going to be able to swamp the, the single or handful of U.S. Navy sophisticated ships. Hold that thought right there. Let me take a quick break. Brandon Weikert is my guest. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest. His most recent book, Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. We are spending uh, the bulk of this interview talking about things China. Uh, Brandon, Ronald Reagan used to speak of wanting a 600-ship uh, Navy. We never got it. He never got it. Um, and there is a lot of talk about you know, restructuring the way our military works. And, of course, the whole new Space, space Force brings an added element uh, to that, high-tech element and important element to that. But uh, 
you know, I talk, I'd, I'd love to know what your, what your sense is generally, regardless of, na- of China uh, or regarding China, about the need of, of doing a much, ra- a much, a much greater ramped up uh, navy. Um, but you know, at the same time, it is interesting that while we're talking about the mechanics, or I should say the physical, um, what would you call it, materiel, maybe, uh, the physical materiel of our military, uh, we might be lacking an intellectual materiel uh, of our military, this kind of thing Ron DeSantis keeps talking about, and maybe it's all for naught. I mean, maybe it changes over administration per administration. But right now, we have an intellectual deficit as much as a Navy ship deficit, don't we? Uh, and that's for sure. And also, we haven't prioritized the Navy. 20 years of right. desert warfare. Right. You know, and the Marines actually were incredibly uh, adept at adapting themselves away from being an amphibious force first oh. into being a desert, you know, landlocked element. Uh, for 20 years, and now they're they're having to kind of relearn the basics and uh, and re- re-educate themselves for being an amphibious force, because, of course, the, the terrain and geography of the Indo-Pacific is so fundamentally different from Afghanistan, Iraq, and all the other places we've been fighting, you know, jihadi terrorists. Um, but the Marine Corps has been really good at adapting. They always are, though. This is why they are one of our most elite fighting forces. The Navy, though, has been kind of held back. And you're right, it's not just the material. One quick thing about the material. Everything we're talking about, the need for a 600-ship Navy, it's still prevalent today, as much as it was, if not more, when Reagan was president. The problem is, even if we had a president like DeSantis, and I think he will be the president, I believe, um, even if uh, he were president, the fact of the matter is our industrial base cannot support even the current reduced demand for the Navy. Uh, if we were to give a strategic and intellectual guidance to the Navy that, hey, you're now going to be a priority and you're now going to need to double up what you have, the American industrial infrastructure supporting the shipbuilding is not there anymore. We're already having trouble meeting peacetime demands at no, present. Right. It's a disaster. And so when you pair that issue, the material issue, the infrastructure and industrial problem, with what you're talking about of an intellectual problem on the part of not just politicians, though, it's also the uniformed service leaders. Right, the outgoing joint chiefs and the income. Right. Yes, all of them. Yeah. Right. It's those individuals who are really in the kind of nitty-gritty daily back and forth who are also suborning this sort of dereliction of our military uh, to the detriment of readiness and to the detriment of the United States' national security. Uh, it will be the Chinese uh, victory over us only because they are able to get us when we are not ready. Yeah. And the reason we would not be ready is because of that lack of material support plus that lack of intellectual guidance and leadership, not just from politicians, though, who come and go, also, though, from the permanent military bureaucracy. A lot of people will tell me that, well, yeah, but it just changes with the administration, the Joint Chiefs, you know, they just follow the commander-in-chief. That's not my memory of what it was like when Trump was president. That's not my memory of Mark Milley's behavior when Trump was president. No, and and I I reiterate, I I say I think DeSantis will be president, but your audience should know why. I've been on the show long enough. I was an early and avowed Trump supporter, and I never wavered. Um, But his biggest failure, and this is my biggest problem with him, looking at it objectively, and we have to do that now, because 2024 really, really is it. This is the last chance to get it right for the next century, for the, you know, going into the rest of the century. 
Um, Trump was really bad on personnel. Yeah. And that was born largely out of the fact that he just wasn't from that world. Yeah. But the problem was, when you're not from that world, you're supposed to bring in people who are from that world and who share your worldview to change things. He could not do that. For yeah, and this reason. isn't, I mean, this is, this, is tr- this is folly that we've seen with a lot of administrations. Uh, this is how Jimmy Carter stumbled so much. He just brought in a bunch of people from Georgia, Bill Clinton right. early on, same with Arkansas. Right. This isn't, right. This is, th- right. it's not as if this history hasn't warned or... Right, or, and actually, yeah. there is a lot of similarities yep. between Donald Trump and Jimmy Carter, and I know nobody wants to hear that. I do, no. think, Jim, I do think Donald Trump was a more effective president ten times than Jimmy Carter was, but... Jimmy Carter, people forget, was a populist liberal, but he was a populist from the South, and the reason people voted for him was because he was unlike Nixon and Ford and LBJ. Hold it, hold it, gotta go, hold it. Little wall of sound there. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Brandon Weikert is our guest. He is a... um, Senior writer, senior editor, I should say, at 1945.com. He is also, as we were talking about, um, the author of uh, his most recent book, which is Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. He is also the author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, and The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. But he and I also like to talk a little domestic politics now. And again, he had just mentioned, as you had just mentioned, Brandon, in the previous segment, I think the audience knows, and you've been clear, you are a supporter of Ron DeSantis's. And um, your sense of what Ron is doing right now and how he's doing right now, uh, people thought that he would shrink the large polling gap but he hasn't, and it's early. I get that, but it's still a very large polling gap, right? It's a large polling gap, but the internal polls, as you know, I'm familiar with yeah. some of what's going on in the. I, mean, yeah. I don't want to talk about that, but but the internal polling is a lot closer than what the mainstream polls and the media are showing. But Trump is still very much the lead, and and to be honest with you, it is completely sensible that he would be the lead because he was the last. Republican president with a very passionate following. Now, the important thing here is, and I don't want to dismiss this, the important thing here, though, is it is still very early. And if you look, if you look at the kind of enthusiasm, for instance, DeSantis just was in New Hampshire, that was a packed, packed hall. Um, I I was surprised how many people, because I wasn't anticipating Trump-like numbers. Um, and, and obviously, you know, Trump at his height in 2016 was getting thousands. But there were hundreds of people, many more than we thought would be there for these Ron DeSantis events in New Hampshire. So that's a, that's a big deal. Uh, if Trump's going to talk about crowd sizes, let's talk about crowd, crowd sizes. And also um, the money factor. The reason that Trump is hitting DeSantis, and let's face it, 28-point lead in some polls, Trump should not even be addressing DeSantis. But he is going after DeSantis as if DeSantis was two or three points behind him only. Um, and the reason is, I think, largely the money factor. DeSantis is a walking ATM machine in much the same way that Obama was in 2008. Some might say much the same way Jeb Bush was, though, too. 
Yeah, you could say that. The difference is that Jeb Bush never had the following okay. that okay. DeSantis Okay, okay, this okay. This is fundamentally yeah. Yeah. different. Okay, okay. Uh, you know, and I say this, by the way, I also, I, I, you know, I'm not a big Bush guy. I never supported Jeb Bush's right. presidency. Right. But I lived in Florida my whole life. He wasn't that bad of a governor. He was an actually very um, good governor. I just remember a lot guy. of hype. He was the $100 million man oh, I agree. and all that. He, yeah. I never, I knew he was never going to make okay. it too boring. Yeah. Now, the difference, the difference is, though, is the following that DeSantis is generating this early on. He has had some early false starts and fumbles, and we've spoken about that before. The good thing here for him is that this is going on, and it was going on in May and now June of 2023, as opposed to October and November and December of 2023, or even April of 2024. So that gives him some time to adjust. This is like the beginnings of a very tough football game. You know, you got to give the team time to adjust going into halftime. Let's see how they do after halftime. Um, I think that Trump is going to peak. I think he might have already peaked. I think DeSantis is just getting started. Um, DeSantis's big thing, and this was my, my article uh, at 1945 from today, yeah. um, was, and I don't pick the headlines for these, by the way, because <laughs> my headline is completely different. Um, the, the thrust of the article is DeSantis, Trump is right when DeSantis, when he says nobody knows what woke means outside of the Republican Party. I actually think Trump's right when he says that. I agree. And what, I'm, what I would urge the DeSantis people to do is to not become so consumed with woke and that sort of rhetoric, but focus on what is it you're, you dislike about woke. Mm-hmm. And that is the fact that, let's face it, wokeness is an unbelievably abnormal uh, response to social issues mm-hmm. in America today. Mm-hmm. So what DeSantis needs to do is forget about using woke. This is where woke goes to die. Just forget about all that. Just talk about what Warren G. Harding talked about in the 1920 election, which is what gave him 60.4% of the popular vote and 404 electoral votes over the Democrats, who remember before then it was Woodrow Wilson's two terms. Um, just remember, DeSantis, you are the only person, the only candidate who can return us to normal. We all want to get back to normal. We want to get back to that moment in 2019 before the Wuhan virus hit the United States from that lab in China. And that's what we're desperate to get back to. And the reason that DeSantis is the only guy who can do it is because as governor of my state of Florida, whereas Trump was talking a big game and then letting Anthony Fauci and letting everybody destroy the economy and letting everybody walk all over him, DeSantis was telling the media and the doctors, no, we're going to keep Florida open. We closed for a few weeks. It's a disaster. We're not going to listen to the White House anymore. We're going to reopen, and we're going to save America, and we're going to save Florida and set an example for America. And that is precisely what DeSantis did. So he may not be the best talker at times. He may put some people to sleep. But I'm telling you right now, the man is an action guy. He, is, he puts the money where the mouth is, and he is, that is why he's the only guy who can get us back to normal. We've got to get back to normal, Seth. We cannot go on as we have since 2020 with this insanity from the social side, you know, with all the, the trans stuff and all that, the, the stuff they're doing to the kids, the grooming, as they call it. We can't have that. We can't allow it. And we can't allow the kind of economic destruction that's been visited upon us with high inflation and high interest rates. Why do we have that, Seth? Because of the COVID lockdown here and around the world, which disrupted supply chains, in some cases permanently, and we're literally paying for it now. We spent 2.2 or printed $2.2 trillion in like six months during COVID. It was the most amount of money ever printed in that amount of time. And now we have high inflation and high interest rates. 
So we've got to get back to the basics. We've got to return to normal. And DeSantis has proven with every policy in Florida, and I don't agree with everything he's done, by the way. His thing with the homeowner's insurance, is if you get a hurricane down here, that's going to kill us. Mm -hmm. But besides that, his stuff here, 99.9% of it indicates to me that not only does he talk the talk, but he actually walks the walk, and he can actually win. And that's the winning ticket. He needs to just talk about, forget about using the term woke, forget about all this other esoteric stuff with Disney. Why is he doing this? Because he wants to get America back to normal. He wants us back to normal. 20 seconds, Brandon. You, like me, have a lot of friends in both camps, uh, Trump camps and DeSantis camps. And... Less and less, unfortunately. Uh, yeah, Trump, I was just going to ask. My, well, I was just going to ask. It's, it's awfully hot online right now, isn't it? It's awfully hot. Heated. Not just online, but yeah, yeah, it, yeah, it's you know the people I know in the Trump world, they're they're annoyed with me, um, and I don't know if they'll ever come back. But um, unfortunately, this is where we're at because yeah. people need to acknowledge that Trump Trump was great in 2016, but and it's not all his fault. I get that, but he did drop the ball on some key issues like personnel, and the personnel choices is what took his presidency down even before COVID hit. Well, I think I, I, I mean, I, I, I think COVID was obviously a politicalized warfare Absolutely. against his administration. And it was not helped by Deborah Burks and Anthony Fauci. It was not right. helped to keep them in the hen house. Brandon, you're the best. Brandon Weikert, thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Until next week. You're thinking about the economy Stock market volatility, bank failures, people talking about a recession, long-term inflation. What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? Why Refi has that. A portfolio where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure and collateralized portfolio from Why Refi, and they are based here locally, headquartered here where I and they encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101 if you're in the hood, or even if you're not. I've been there, and you won't be asked to sign a thing. You won't get a sales pitch. When you meet with the team at Y-Refi, though, you will see why I trust and like them so much, and you can too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or give them a call at 888-Y-REFI-34. That's 888-Y-REFI-34. Uh, David is um, is a keen student of uh, political history, and he has uh, on, he instant messaged me the moment uh, Brandon Weikert was talking about Warren Harding. He instant messaged me a return to normalcy, which uh, good on you, Dave, for knowing that. I, I don't know that a lot of people remember that as the as the call for Warren Harding, um, but but it is interesting that that was the claim the Democrats made. In twenty uh, in twenty twenty, wasn't it? You have to vote for Joe Biden because we need to return to normal. But the problem here with DeSantis uh, speaking of a return to normalcy, Brandon's right. I think in in a very serious and decisive respect that we have normalized the abnormal in these culture wars. There's no question that we have. Um, we have demarginalized the marginal, marginal, and it's upside down. It's it's awful, frankly, and it's what you can lose a country over. 
My only question, and it's an open question, and we'll work through it together over the course of this campaign, is when you look at the way Ron DeSantis uh, uh, is uh, editorialized on and written about and fundraised off of from the Democrats, I get the Democrats' fundraisers, they don't distinguish between him and Trump. They think he's as much of, a, for lack of a better phrase, I suppose, a fire eater as Donald Trump. They call him an extreme MAGA Republican as well, which is the new mantra for the Democratic Party. They've gone from a return to normalcy to marginalizing extreme uh, MAGA, uh, the extreme MAGA movement, which to them, clearly, from the stuff I'm seeing, is all Republicans. Uh, Tim Scott put a put a little dent on it, into it today with the ladies at The View, but it won't last long. It'll last, oh, all of till Tuesday is my guess. All right, folks, great Monday. Thank you, David, Bill, everyone else. Appreciate it. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth Leibson. God bless you all, and class is dismissed.